This episode of the Data Center Podcast is brought to you by Data Center World, the global conference for data center facilities and IT professionals. Join industry colleagues in San Antonio from March 12th to March 15th, 2018 to discover solutions to real-world data center problems. Learn more at datacenterworld.com. Again, that's datacenterworld.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Data Center Podcast. We have with us John N. Gates. He's the CTO of Rackspace. John, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with us. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, pleased to be on your podcast today. Thank you. Tell us about your, your background. How did you end up in this space? How did you end up in tech? Well, my, um, my history goes all the way back, you know, in the early days of, of computing. I, I fell in love with computers when I was a kid, I, all the way through high school, uh, played with computers, tinkered with them. Uh, in college, somehow I ended up in the business school and I got a degree in uh, accounting of all things, but all the while while I was working on that degree, I was spending time in the computer lab learning all about the internet. I was on a uh, silicon graphics machine in the computer lab and I got email and access to uh, Usenet and all of that IRC and learned all about uh, Unix and eventually Linux. And um, when I graduated from school, I sort of saw this potential negative downside of no internet access, right? So I was going to be sort of without my, uh, my access to the internet. And so a friend of mine who I met in that computer lab, he and I started a internet service provider, an ISP. And so this was like 1994, 93, Where 94? was this? San Antonio, in Texas. San Antonio. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm uh, born and grew up in San Antonio, Texas. Uh -huh. And um, what know, was we, the name of the ISP? Internet Direct. Okay. Yeah, Internet Direct. And uh, it was a local ISP, small, you know, small uh, homegrown ISP. We basically bought, um, you know, servers and modems. We had modems that were stacked up uh, to allow people to dial in. Uh, we got off the, you know, off the ground pretty quickly because people were, you know, people were uh, looking for that sort of online experience to use their computer and their modem. You know, they had uh, at the time some. Uh, you know, some online services, but they weren't internet access. They weren't true internet. You, you were, this was kind of pre-AOL days when mm -hmm. AOL really wasn't an ISP yet. And so we gave them dial-up internet access and e email and whatnot and, and really created a full-featured ISP. What was your data center like? <laughs> it was literally a, uh, a, a room that we just carved out in, like, in one of the offices that we... Um, uh, that we had our, our space. Uh, it was it was a very hot room because the, there was no real airflow in there. There was no dedicated anything in terms of cooling or power. You guys uh, didn't. Um, we just didn't know. The chiller. At, the, at that time, we didn't know. Honestly, we were like, uh, we just didn't know what we didn't know. It was you know early '90s, and and uh, we just kind of were scrappy and built what we could. And we did evolve. You know, certainly over time, we did eventually get a real. Uh, telco style data center with telco racks you know we were we were not quite at the point where we um, were emulating you know true IT organizations with the four post racks we were using the two post telco kind of like what you'd see in a in a switch right and we uh, we were using 48 volt power uh, to power our Cisco router and we were uh, we had actually one of the first uh, T3 circuits DS3 circuits run into San, uh, San Antonio 
Uh, at that time, everybody was running T1s and multiple T1s and fractional T1s. Those were kind of the speeds back then. But you guys we, were ahead of the curve. We were a little ahead. We got a fractional T3 that was burstable, and we had plenty of bandwidth, and it was kind of fun. I mean, those days were, were like you were really creating everything sort of on the fly. You were learning a lot of new things, very uh, rapid fire style. I mean, I was doing everything uh, in the business, including you know selling on on one hand and supporting customers on the other hand, and working in the in the data center, uh, you know, when things went wrong, and and uh, trying to plan for capacity for the future. All of that was sort of rolled up in my my job. My my title was like general manager, so I, you know that that sort of defines what a general manager does. But um, Ultimately, um, you know, it was it was a good business, but it was a business that, uh, you know, was was eventually going to be taken over by telcos and and by uh, cable companies, and we sort of knew that. I knew that. Um, but one of the uh, the businesses that we sort of entered into in the latter years of of that ISP was co-location. So we started to do a little bit of our own colo. Um, we didn't call it Colo at the time. We called it Land Hosting, which is a crazy thought because you know there land were land is an L A N land, like local area network. Uh -huh. So basically, you brought your server to our LAN uh -huh. and connected it up, and so we called it Land Hosting. I know that didn't fly in the in the uh, grand scheme of things. Colo was the term that eventually won out, but uh, but ultimately, that's where I met um, several of the founders of, of Rackspace. Uh, some of them were competitors because they were an ISP also. They had started as an ISP and then grew into Rackspace. And one of uh, the individuals that was involved in Rackspace early on uh, was a guy named Morris Miller. He was an investor in Rackspace. And he was one of my customers. He was one of my first big co-location customers. So he had uh, dial-up access, dedicated access, and co-location. And they were doing web hosting at the they time? They were doing an e-commerce site. He e was trying to build an e-commerce, like one of the first you know, uh, of its kind at that time. I mean, we, we had to uh, basically buy the, um, the uh, Netscape secure server commerce edition, whatever it was called back then, to kind of uh, make that work. And um, one of the stories that he used to tell about that experience was that it took so long from the time to get the idea to the time to get online with that server. I mean, he had to buy a server physically from Dell. He had to have the server shipped came on a pallet because it was one of those big roll around servers that sat on four wheels. <laughs> it, uh, when it came, it didn't have all the licenses that he needed, so he had to acquire you know, Windows licenses or Linux or whatever he was looking for at the time. Uh, we had to get it connected to our network, and then he had to do a whole bunch of work to get everything configured and set up. And he thought, you know, there's got to be a better way. And when the uh, original founders of Rackspace um, showed that they had an idea for bringing servers you know, to, the, to the masses in a very automated you know, kind of uh, model where they could point, click, and deploy, that he said it's a fantastic idea. This is way better than co-location. It's a better idea. It's you know, faster, cheaper, better in every way. And uh, that's why he chose to, um, uh, to get involved with, with, with Rackspace. So. Um, and it really you know, grew from that. I think Rackspace grew out of the need for Linux servers. Linux was kind of the up-and-coming operating system at that time. Windows was, was there, certainly, but it wasn't prevalent on the internet yet because it really hadn't, you know, it, uh, the internet information server, IIS at that time, uh, uh, web server, really wasn't 
uh, mature. Uh, NT 4.0 wasn't all that stable from a web hosting standpoint, and so Linux was, was I mean, maybe Sun servers were even more dominant at that time. Right. Sun was, was the real dominant server, but right. Linux was the cheap new uh, up-and-coming server, BSD as well, and mm -hmm. so, um, you know, when Rackspace launched, in late 98 is when it, Rackspace officially launched. I joined Rackspace in August of 2000. The whole company was revolving around, you know, uh, dedicated Linux servers. Dedicated Linux servers in 24 hours or less, basically. Were you pretty close to Rackspace when it launched? The people that launched it? Um, yeah, I knew all of the founders. I knew all of the guys. Um, you know, one of the uh, founders, Richard Yu, he was uh, a big advocate for ISPs in Texas. He helped, uh, you know, really uh, champion the, the cause of ISPs and you know there was a lot of uh, trouble back then in terms of you know were we a carrier or were we a telco or were we something else and you know you had to sort of carve out um, you know sort of the legal definitions for these things because taxes were a, were a thing and you had to figure out how to charge taxes for these services and then also you wanted to put yourself in a position where you could buy telco services at wholesale prices and you, you know there's all kinds of legal ramifications to that as well and so uh, you had to have some advocacy for the ISPs and, and Richard was a big advocate and that's where I met him probably for the first time and then I they were also hosted in the same building that we were almost all of the little ISPs and telcos and uh, CLEX everybody was in this building that was like literally across the street from uh, at the time it was called Southwestern Bell today it's SBC or AT&T mm -hmm. you may know them as AT&T today but across the street from their main telco switch because you wanted to be within zero mile range of the main switch you've got you've got cheap T1s you've got reliable phone lines you got you know basically right. the the lowest possible cost what was the address of the building 100 Taylor Street 100 Taylor. it's in San Antonio Texas it's okay. it's like the the telco pop like the, the, the place to be the carrier hotel in San Antonio yeah 100 Taylor Street and uh, I spent countless hours in the basement of 100 Taylor Street wiring you know uh, phone lines and uh, you know, running connectivity up to our, our our room was like on the third floor, so we had to have con conduit run from the third floor down to the basement. But the good news about being on the third floor was it was the, had roof access, so you could get air conditioning piped right into your, uh, you know, uh, into your suite really easily. Important. So, yeah, very important. Uh, important uh, aspects. Of very important. Yeah. Is that is that does it still have it, that role? Uh, it still exists. I haven't been to that building. I mean, it's this is looking back 17 plus years. Um, I haven't really spent much time uh, you know thinking about yeah. that world but I'm sure I'm wondering does it is it still the primary um, hub for San Antonio uh, or are there others now? well you know the, the 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 industry in San Antonio changed quite a bit in terms of, of uh, data centers because look it, it's not it's not the case that you need to have all your equipment in San Antonio anymore I mean ISPs you know that AT&T and uh, Time Warner and all those cable companies and phone companies, they have their own telco pops. There's not a lot of competition for uh, ISP services anymore. You know, that, that era is done. And so there isn't a need to be in that location. It was never a great place for massive amounts of servers because it was not a building that was designed for the physical load of lots and lots of servers. It was good for location, but it was bad right. from an uh, infrastructure perspective. And so I doubt that it's being used for anything beyond kind of the, the basic telco interconnect stuff. Um, uh, and, and you know, when I characterize it as the place, 
it was never very big either. It was a fairly small place. And, and uh, today, San Antonio, you know, if you're, if you're there and you have any significant uh, data center needs, you're probably over on the side of town where Microsoft built their big data center years ago, one of their early uh, prototypes or one of their early um, cloud data centers was in yeah. San Antonio. And uh, there's just, a number. They just bought, um, I think, a, a Chevron data center. Yeah, possibly. Center in San Antonio. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, it's a good town for um, some things, and then for other things, it's 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 not the best. But it was great for Rackspace because you know we needed access to smart, talented people. Uh, there was there's a lot of them there, and then the nice bit is that we don't really compete for those talented people with a lot of other tech companies because there are not a lot of other tech companies there. So Rackspace was kind of an island. And we yeah. had you know sort of unfettered access to all these you know geeks that wanted to to play with uh, Linux and technology. Yeah. So um, maybe Rackspace has gone through multiple transformations between then and now. Yeah. Um, can you maybe briefly walk us through those key? Sure. Um, sure. I think uh, in, the in the early days um, we were a dedicated server hosting company. That was the very earliest model. Uh, Almost purely uh, infrastructure and data center and and uh, server and and really very little in terms of services. It was almost all real estate, if you will. And then there was a realization uh, made by our founder that the real value that we could bring was the management. So we transitioned from a dedicated server company to a managed server company. Managed hosting was what we called it. And Rackspace really rose to the uh, top ranks of the managed hosting industry because of, of what we called fanatical support. It was our brand, it was our mantra, it was what we built our whole uh, company around, the idea of creating a great customer service experience and a great outcome for customers. And ultimately, that's what we sort of hung our hat on in terms of, of who we are and what we were. And so we evolved that idea of managed servers from just Linux to Linux and Windows and from Linux and Windows to not just dedicated single servers, but multiple servers and complex deployments of, uh, you know, firewalls, load balancers, um, storage came into the picture. So big enterprise storage. Uh, we at one point went from white box hardware that we built ourselves to Dell and HP equipment that we bought, and so you know, lots of evolution of the company in terms of going up market, up the stack, and 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 broadening our reach into other markets. Um, we. Uh, you know, originally we're founded in, in San Antonio, Texas, but now we're all over the world. So we had to grow into other regions and other markets and whatnot. Uh, I think the real turning, the next big turning point would really be when the cloud hit uh, in terms of, you know, uh, awareness, when people started to be aware of what cloud was or what the potential for cloud was. And I would put that at around 2006, 2007, maybe 2008 timeframe. That was the, the first few years of of cloud and our awareness of cloud. And uh, AWS uh, entered the market with uh, you know, S3 and uh, EC2 and, and those services. We were doing a little bit of multi-tenant cloud, if you will, with a platform that we called Moso. And Moso was web hosting on a shared platform. Prior to that, most people did, uh, when I say web hosting, I mean shared web hosting. So if you if you had one simple website that you wanted to host, typically you'd go find some shared hoster and you'd put your website on that shared right. hoster. You wouldn't server. have your own server. You wouldn't buy your own server. Um, if you if you went to a, 
one of those shared hosters, typically you would be slotted in on one of a number of dedicated machines. But if that dedicated machine failed, you, your site went, went with it, right? It was literally that simple. I mean, you were put on a server with you know, 2,000 other websites, and if, if that machine failed, you were down until they could repair it. So what we built was a multi-tenant shared hosting platform uh, that we called Moso, and it was built for people that did web design and web hosting and, and uh, wanted to serve their customers with a more reliable, more scalable platform. So Moso was good for, it was great for that. It was a general purpose web hosting platform built for designers and developers. And it really was the first time in our history that Rackspace had ever written software that the customer actually used. Like most of the time, the software that we wrote was like internal ticketing systems or internal support systems or things that we used, the tooling behind the scenes to, to, uh, to deliver the managed hosting. But the interface for managed hosting was the server. People would log on to the server and they would interface with Linux, right? Well, this was the first time we built a software that, that was uh, available to the customer directly, you know, where they were clicking, pointing, deploying, managing, they had a user Making it interface. as easy as possible. That's right, simplifying. To, to get their website out. And I think that, that uh, the timing was good because the timing gave Rackspace um, you know, sort of this uh, confidence that we could build uh, customer-facing services. And, and right, right around that same time, we started to build our own cloud storage platform. So if you remember, I, I just mentioned the 2006 timeframe was when AWS launched. And I don't remember if S3 was 2006 or 2007. But we had a request come in from uh, a big company, a well-known company. I don't want to name names, but it was a well-known uh, company that makes uh, media tools. So let's just think, think uh, video and photo and whatnot. So uh, they wanted to store large amounts of data in the cloud. They wanted to um, you know, put lots and lots of media assets in the in, in they didn't even call it the cloud at that time. They just called it the data center. They had a, mm -hmm. a server, server or two with us, and they wanted to, uh, you know, sort of float this this RFP out there to see who could deliver cheap and deep storage, you know, at scale. And um, we didn't have a great solution at the time. The only solutions were commercial, you know, proprietary storage platforms, big SANs or big NASs. And the price per gigabyte was just too high. I mean, it was just literally, it was, the performance was good, but the price per gigabyte was too high. And it, and it also nece wasn't necessarily as scalable as they had envisioned it would be. That, you know, you'd have to end up standing up lots and lots of SANs or, or and, and And they, were, they weren't doing this for customers, right? This was, was for their... They were intending this eventually is, this, to, oh, really? to, so to deliver a, then, a service to customers. SAS? Yeah, they were okay. intending eventually to. Huh. Um, and so we started to try to respond to that RFP in two sort of different ways. One was to go the commercial route and look for help from our vendors, you know, the big storage vendors. And the other route uh, was to use our new found technical software development, you know, experience to go build something and build a, a, a you know, basically a scalable storage platform. And so our team, we had a, a, a little team inside of Rackspace that we called Rack Labs. It was like a Skunk Works team of software engineers, few guys, just a few. And I got in a room with these guys and we got on a whiteboard and we sort of brainstormed out how um, that storage system might work. You know, we said it's got to be cheap, so it's got to be on commodity hardware, probably Linux servers. We've got to layer software over the top for the reliability because we're probably not going to be able to buy expensive storage RAID 
cards and chassis and whatnot. And so what we were basically building was a, a uh, distributed storage system. And we looked at everything out there in the market. We looked at open source software. We looked at proprietary stuff. I mean, we wanted to buy it if we could buy it. But eventually, we figured out that we sort of had to go build this thing. And we built a proof of concept. And we presented it to this company. And they said, great effort, good work. But you know, it's not ready yet. It's not you know, mature enough yet. Uh, but you know, keep going. Call us back. You know. And um, eventually, that prototype and that confidence and that you know, sort of series of events is what led to Rackspace building uh, what we call OpenStack Swift today, Cloud Files. Cloud Files was our product name. The first version of that product was a prototype proof of concept. And a couple of evolutions later, you know, uh, after we scaled this thing, we ended up building OpenStack Swift. Mm -hmm. And so Swift, um, it's a completely different code base than that first prototype. So I don't want to you know, oversimplify. Those guys rewrote things many times over to right. get to OpenStack Swift. But that was really our entree into the open source project that today is known as OpenStack. I mean, that was our contribution. That was the most mature piece of software that, we, that was contributed on day one. And it was the thing that sort of held mm -hmm. things together. Uh, you remember at the time NASA was um, That's right. working on OpenStack from a Nova standpoint. They contributed the compute code, and we contributed the storage code. But those two together were the foundations for the OpenStack community and what we all sort of rallied around and built that community on. So a big turning point there is building a cloud, building a cloud storage platform, getting involved in OpenStack, and then eventually building our own public cloud uh, via those efforts. Um, let's see. Let's keep fast forwarding a little right. bit more, right? So OpenStack uh, has evolved quite a bit. I mean, we use OpenStack today. Uh, for our public cloud, we, we still offer a public cloud. Uh, we also uh, really deliver OpenStack in the context of private cloud. That's where it's primarily um, resonating for a lot of our customers. Big enterprise customers that we serve, uh, they look to Rackspace because of our uh, expertise on the OpenStack platform, because we've operated the cloud at tremendous scale because we know the ins and outs of OpenStack and have right. tons of expertise. And you guys have also, you have done, you have been um, a public cloud provider. We have been. And that, that's, and, and that's provided us a lot of insights that you don't get if you just go out to the market and pick up OpenStack for the right. first time and try to go deliver it. If you have built a public cloud and operated a public cloud and figured out all the ups and downs of, of, of that, including you know, the uh, performance and security and, and uh, scaling and you know, just the operations and, and um, uh, you know, all, the, all the mess that goes along with that. All you the, learn a lot of lessons. Right. And so, yeah, so the most recent um, kind of iteration of Rackspace is as a, a managed cloud provider. Where you're, that's true. That's true. The most recent is now a provider is um, a, yeah. of the infrastructure, but you, you help companies. Yes. We, we don't solely provide services like we used to in a Rackspace data center. Today, we're providing services on top of a uh, uh, number of public cloud providers, AWS, Microsoft Azure, Google Cloud. Uh, the private cloud that I mentioned with, with uh, OpenStack, huge business for Rackspace is OpenStack private cloud as a service. We deliver that in Rackspace data centers, but we also deliver that in customer premises data centers and colo provider partner data centers. And so that's, and that's a, a recent development, right? A couple uh, of years, a few okay, years. Yeah, a few years. The most recent development 
if you if you look at the news recently, that the real new development is the t the the idea of pricing that in a in a scalable model like the public cloud, where you pay for what you use, you scale up and scale down. We're working with a, a partner, HPE, HP Enterprise, to really deliver a. Um, a computing model that allows you to burst in a private cloud model. So ultimately, it's just taking the uh, the idea of a private cloud and, and bridging it to uh, some of the, the benefits of a public yeah. cloud and bringing those two together. And um, I should also add just a couple more things to that private cloud side, not just OpenStack, but also VMware is a big partner of Rackspace, huge deployment of VMware at Rackspace. Right. And then also Microsoft, going you know way back to the early days of, of Rackspace, we were a strong partner with Microsoft, and that has now uh, really evolved into working with them on the public and the private cloud side. Yeah. So, open, so Azure Stack on the private cloud. Side. And you guys also do uh, managed SaaS services, right? So we're not just you're not just uh, yeah SaaS as well. So yeah, email is is a is a great business for Rackspace. Um, historically, we've you know we've hosted millions of email boxes, and uh, today we work with uh, Microsoft on uh, Office 365. We have. Um, you know, recently entered the market for enterprise applications as well. So we um, acquired a company called Tricor Solutions about three or four months ago, where we uh, extend our support not only in the infrastructure layers but all the way up into the application layers. And and uh, we've done work with uh, with a number of companies on e-commerce platforms around you know sort of delivering software in a more SaaS type solution. Mm -hmm. And also, um, even recently, he uh, dipped our toe into the PaaS market with uh, the folks at Pivotal. So Pivotal Cloud Foundry and Rackspace struck up a, a support partnership where we were going to uh, deliver that as a, as a supported platform at Rackspace, uh, the, the Pivotal Cloud Foundry platform. So really a wide array of, of solutions, all managed and supported and operated by Rackspace, uh, delivering you know, great outcomes for IT. Yeah. And you guys have a, a new CEO. Talk about. Uh, the differences that you felt in the approach of Joe Ezer. Yep, Joe Ezer. Um, so Joe is versus, a versus Graham. Yeah, yeah. So so we have CEO. a. Uh, you mentioned Graham. Graham was the sort of founding CEO of the company, going all the way back to the early days. Uh, Graham, um, you know, basically hired a CFO in the early days. His name was Lanham Napier, and Lanham, Lanham eventually became our CEO uh, for many many years. Um, Lanham left. You know, a few years back, in you know, 2014, 2013, 2013, 2014 timeframe, and then Taylor Rhodes, another longtime CEO, or a longtime racker, became the CEO. And Taylor led us through a particularly interesting time in the company's history because we were making a lot of change. Uh, you know, and we mentioned some of these you know platform shifts going on, but also we went from being a publicly traded company to being a private company. That was a big change, big shift for the company. Probably a, one of the best things that's happened to us in a long time because being public is very hard. I'll, I'll, I'll say that the to quarterly anybody. Quarterly yeah, and It's hard because yes, the quarterly earnings report, you're basically on a cadence of, of trying to deliver good, good news to the market at that sort of interval and, and keep all the investors on board and make sure everybody gets the picture and understands who you are and what you're Vision is and, and lots of overhead that comes. Lots of overhead that. and lots of and and you can never make everybody happy. Everybody, somebody's always going to be mad at you, constantly. It's just a fact of life. And so uh, going private uh, was a big change for the company. And um, Joe Ezer uh, really came on board um, 
after we, we went private, after the, our uh, new ownership, uh, Apollo Global uh, is, our, is our private equity ownership at Rackspace, and they um, really brought Joe in to take the, the lead in terms of where we were headed going forward. And so I think um, it's been really uh, amazing to have Joe on board because he's led us through these two acquisitions that, that I, well, I mentioned one of them, but we didn't talk about the other one. Data um, pipe. Yeah, Datapipe is the most recent acquisition that we've announced. And so uh, Joe has really led us uh, to, in the direction of, of acquiring these two companies. And they're both in the, um, really in the, in the vision, under the vision of being a, a true leader in the multi-cloud managed services space. So this is an emerging category in the market. This is not something that you know, we, we uh, had to have many years ago, but most companies today are are uh, finding themselves squarely on top of multiple clouds right. and spanning across these yeah. different. And I, I want to get to that later. Yeah, but we'll I get wanted to, that. to Joe. So yeah, Joe's Joe, a good leader. Can, what is? Uh, can you talk about his leadership style versus, uh, versus yeah. uh, Taylor's style? Well, everybody's different in terms of the way of course, they yeah. they do things. Uh, you know, I think um, uh, Taylor had been with us for a long time at Rackspace. You know, knew uh, everything behind the scenes, how things worked, and so he didn't really change much. That was one, you know, one unique uh, or one side effect of being there for a long time is you know you you kind of have a history with the company and you know you, you were kind of grew up within the company. I think you don't have like the need to come in and, and I'm immediately the new guy. I yeah. need to make my mark. That's right. You don't have you don't have the need to, to just make a lot of change because you know you kind of know what's working and what's not. You do make change because you're the CEO and you have some opinions. But massive change I don't think we made. Plus again he was working in in the context of a lot of other sort of corporate structure change, like being public to being private, and, and also fighting that uh, being public battle for a couple of years took a lot uh, you know, strain mm -hmm. on, on him. But I would say uh, that Joe has brought in some external uh, thoughts and ideas, some things that have worked for him elsewhere. Uh, he's brought in a few new folks, uh, our new, uh, you know, sort of some, of some of the folks on our leadership team are new uh, that, that, that Joe either worked with or brought in uh, to work with him. And I think that's good stuff for us. That's good change because I think you need new ideas, you need new thoughts, you need to to question what you've done all along and what's you know what's been sort of the sacred cow for a long time. Does it really need to be a sacred cow can forever? You give, can you give me an example of a sacred cow that he? Uh... Well, I think some of the business some of the businesses that we've been in historically uh, that maybe we just need to stop. You know, like for example that. Um, uh, that business that I mentioned, uh, Moso, uh, early on was our first cloud mm -hmm. foray. I mean, that that was um, something that eventually evolved into something we called Cloud Sites, and we eventually sold Cloud Sites. We sold the whole business. We sold that whole thing and said, let's let's not let's not be in the in the uh, you know simple web hosting business. We're going after enterprises, and so it's it's really just questioning. I think things that were things that worked but were ne not necessarily our core focus, things that, uh, you know, maybe even just in terms of realigning people, you know, and, and I think some of the, um, uh, the, the, the work that we're doing on OpenStack, as I mentioned, it resonates very well in the private cloud. And so just orienting people toward pushing for private cloud versus trying to, to push to, to be a public cloud and to be a big public cloud. I mean, we have a public cloud. It works really well. It, it continues to operate for many, many customers. 
but it's not necessarily the, uh, the product that we lead with. And so we need to really be focused on what exactly is resonating in the market, what customers want, what is part of that multi-cloud portfolio and, and where we can do our best work. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that. Um, it seems that there is now this, this enterprise workload migration to the cloud that, that everybody's been talking about for years. Um, appears that now it's kind of shifting into higher gear and, and things really starting to happen. Big companies, we're hearing about big um, enterprise deals. Uh, companies are signing uh, cloud providers like Chevron, Microsoft, for example. Um, talk about uh, that from your perspective. Where does, what is Rackspace's role in this, okay. in this migration? Well, I think you're right that it, it is happening now. Uh, it, it's been building for a while. I mean, I think most companies have been experimenting with cloud for, you know, for a number of years and some fast, some more aggressively than others. But it, you know, as, as it picks up speed, the momentum builds, you know, and, and people start to look at, you know, this, the next workload and the next workload and the next workload, and it looks like a, like a domino effect, right? And it, and at some point, you hit sort of a tipping point where you say, well, if all of that worked in the cloud, well, then, you know, why won't this work in the cloud? And then you start to see applications that need to go in, in chunks, you know, where they work together. You know, you've got two or three or four applications that all share data with one another. And, you know, there may be a, a question of, of latency if you try to tear them apart. And so you just say, well, let's just move that whole group together. And that group goes together and, and sometimes pulls with it a number of other ancillary products or portfolio components. And so that's how that momentum builds inside of an enterprise. And, uh, and then sometimes you get around to a refresh cycle in the, in the company where you might have to make a choice around a new data center or a, a refresh of an existing data center, or you have to buy a whole new set of servers to you know, sort of upgrade everything. And you make another decision, do we do, we do that or do we move another big chunk to the cloud? Do we just stop doing that work and, and move a big uh, portion of our IT estate to a public cloud? And so I think that's how, where we kind of find ourselves at this stage. We find ourselves an, uh, enough, at enough um, uh, a distance into this cloud evolution that people have confidence in it. The security hurdles have really been worked out. Most people now start to, are, are really starting to believe that cloud security is better than on-premises security just because they're, they're, they're more sophisticated operators in, in the public cloud. And now we've got enough years of, of familiarity with cloud that people are having confidence that they can, they can do it, they can pull it off. And so I think that's the, the sort of uh, set of circumstances that we find ourselves where people are moving these big workloads. Do you think that the cloud providers have also kind of caught up with the enterprise needs? I, I believe that's true too. I think the, the, the portfolios are complete. They've got a rich set of, of capabilities. You've got choice now in the market. It's not just one big cloud provider. You've got three, four, maybe more that you can really rely on that have a similar uh, feature set, at least at the 80-20 at the, you know, rule. You know, you've got uh, you know, Microsoft being longtime partner of the enterprise IT department that's now got a really compelling product suite. Uh, you've got Amazon, obviously the leader and the, the one with the most mature and longest uh, running product set. And then you've got Google in the market as well, now pushing you know, enterprises uh, from a different perspective. And, and then um, you know, VMware is now telling a story around uh, moving workloads to the cloud, whereas in the past they might have 
sort of resisted that. Today, they're actually enabling that. So I think all of that. They, they kind of dabbled in being a cloud provider themselves. They did. They did. And so, so uh, you know, at this stage, they've um, really got a, a product that uh, is enabling companies to move, you know, workloads, or, or will enable companies to move workloads over time to uh, public cloud like Amazon, YBM too as well. And I mean, and, and again, that's, we've got competition, so we've got really the possibility now to spread your workloads across multiple clouds, which means we can have a multi-vendor scenario, which means we take a lot of risk out of being too beholden to any one particular cloud provider. And that's helpful for enterprises to make the case. It also helps them with the pricing because they have people that they can use to leverage you know, for buying power and for, for uh, uh, negotiation leverage. And so all of that uh, still, you know, all that adds up to a, an equation where enterprises feel more and more comfortable with the public cloud. It, it seems to me kind of, maybe this may sound simplistic, that recently all of the players have kind of agreed that there's going to be a hybrid multi-cloud world because if you would listen to Amazon people yeah. talk about uh, the future in presentations and conferences a couple of years ago, it would be yeah. everything's going to be in Amazon. Pretty soon, uh, all this hybrid stuff is just a, a, a stepping stone. And, yes. But now, everybody all of a sudden, uh, the cloud providers and uh, the, v the vendors of on-prem technology Everybody's now talking about hybrid and multi-cloud. Multi-cloud or that. the edge. They're talking yeah, about all these. The edge yep. is another big thing. Yeah. So I think that's just reality. IT is a messy thing. There's, you know, when you look at it from a purely logical, technical, whatever perspective, it would make logical sense to go all in on one cloud and have all your IT in one place and all be completely pure in terms of how you deploy everything. But that's not reality. Reality is that. IT was built over decades. You've got legacy technology. You've got new technology that's emerging right now. You've got uh, not only um, geography to contend with, you know, locations are, matter in the world. So that's another sort of thing that's outside of the realm of logic. You know, physics is a, is a, is a whole different category of problem. You can't um, solve it with software, right? You, you can't solve real physics problems with, I mean, you know, you can solve a lot with software, but, you know, when you talk about speed of light and you talk about moving massive amounts of data quickly from one part of the world to another, it's hard, right? And physics is, is something we haven't yet overcome. And then lastly, you've got people. You've got politics. You've got agendas that people have in, in, in the equation. You've got businesses that don't all move at the same pace. You've got, you know, competing interests within a company. And all of those things make for an environment where no matter how uh, much of a, of a vision you paint or how purist you are, you're going to end up with, with things that don't quite fit that vision and that, uh, that pure you know, sort of panacea, beautiful picture of the future. And so you have to deal with that stuff. And, and the way you deal with it is by sometimes having two or three different cloud providers. Sometimes you have you know, uh, applications that are on different platforms for different reasons. Sometimes you've got private cloud in one part of the world and public cloud in another part of the world for, for uh, you know, legal reasons. Sometimes you know, compliance reasons dictate things. All kinds of things come into the equation and then they, they just they have their own constraints that you have to work around. And, and I think that's why we end up in a world where it's multi-cloud or hybrid cloud. And then the edge is this new twist to all of this where because of IoT and because of 
devices that are going to live in your home and in your car and in the factory and in the manufacturing plant, whatever, those things are going to have computing in them as well. And so it's hard to imagine that um, you know, everything is going to live in one big central data center in the sky. You know, it's going to be really everywhere. And that means computing is, is going to even be more complicated for a while. Um, so I, I think that's just reality. It's, the reality is that we're going to have to contend with this. And Rackspace is in a position to embrace that for companies. That's, that's what, what our, our mission is. And that's, that's our role That's what you guys have selected as is, your role. Yeah, right? that's our role is to really embrace the complexity of all of that on behalf of our customers, take the pain and the burden out of it, provide the expertise that they need, the experience that they need to get it right, to help them navigate through that transition. Many companies are going through a massive transition and disruption within their own company that, that we call digital transformation or digital disruption or whatever that term of the week is. But that's a real thing. That's a dynamic that's playing out inside of companies. And they're learning those new skills around how to, you know, instead of consume software that they bought in a packaged box somewhere, they're consuming software that they built possibly or integrated with other software. They're sometimes for the first time writing Again, like we did, writing code that the consumer interfaces with. It's not like it's the accounting system or the HR system that they bought. It's, it's software that you know, might run on a mobile app or an iPad or a web interface that they built. And it's a consumer experience that they're trying to deliver. And um, you know, that, that means they need to learn a lot of these same lessons in cloud, uh, you know, how to use the cloud, how to deliver software as in a CI/CD model, how to be agile and use agile, you know, sort of methodologies and philosophies, and sort of, um, you know, do the cloud thing as we as we as yeah. we think of it. How do you prevent a future scenario when a Google or an Amazon um, takes one of the core things that you do now and just introduces their own version of yeah. that, except they're selling that directly to the same customer? Yeah. Well, I, look, I don't I don't too. think there's any way to guarantee it. There, the the way you uh, defend against it is by being very close to your customer, listening to what your customer wants from you, uh, figuring out how to uh, fill in gaps that the big guys can't or won't do, um, how to make sure that you're also uh, leveraging the best of all of the providers instead of any one particular provider. And so that's where, again, multi-cloud plays a role is because we can look across and aggregate different capabilities and help customers take advantage of those capabilities across multiple clouds. We can become their trusted advisor, a true trusted advisor, a true partner. Uh, we've done this for many, many years with, with Rackspace. Uh, our services have been uh, you know, a true kind of uh, extension of, of the, uh, the company's own IT function. And we, we sort of blend in seamlessly with their IT organization to deliver these great uh, service and software outcomes. Um, but I think you know having a great culture inside of Rackspace has been one thing that sustained us over all these years. We've built a fantastic culture that helps us attract good talent, grow new talent, learn you know how these technologies work very quickly. We have an environment where a uh, you know a person can come on board with relatively low level of experience and very quickly become experience because they're working on lots of hard problems every day, day in, day out for lots of different companies in multiple industries. And uh, the, you know, the unique secret sauce in Rackspace is, is building an environment where those people uh, want to come to work. They want to volunteer their best every day for their customers. They want to learn new things very rapidly. 
and uh, they want to work as a team with with one another and, and with the customer. And um, you know, I I guess in theory you can replicate all of that stuff, but but it, we've we've told people that secret sauce formula for many years and. Nobody's ever replicated it. Nobody's ever built, you know, the the fanatical support culture that Rackspace has built. We're very unique. If you come see Rackspace's headquarters, it looks unique. It's in an, it's in an old uh, shopping mall, basically a 1980s era shopping mall that we've re, uh, re you know rehabbed into our headquarters. It's got really a unique look and feel to it. There's a vibe inside the company that's very special. And you, you know you might co compare it to uh, some a few companies in the in the Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, but very few uh, companies in the world really are, are are just you know just like that. So it's it's something that's very unique and, and special and helps us deliver, I think, a better service uh, mm -hmm. outcome than than most of our competitors. And I mean, it's, it seems that uh, at least some of the cloud companies are um, cloud giants are happy to kind of outsource that professional services part to you guys. You mentioned Google. Yeah, and, and we're, we're working with all of them, honestly. Right. I mean, we, we have a partnership uh, with AWS for, for delivering managed services on top of their platform. Same with Microsoft. Google, recently we um, struck up a partnership with them as well that's uh, unique in, in the fact that uh, we're, we're the first uh, services partner in, in that's supporting the Google Cloud. We're the uh, one that's going to bring the customer reliability engineering that they call CRE. You might have read about SRE, but this is CRE. This is the customer-facing form of Google's SRE philosophy. And Rackspace will end up uh, delivering that to customers um, you know, as the first sort of external partner to do that. And so it's, it's, um, uh, it's really, I think, something that uh, they, they do look for outside help on. The, the big providers know they can't do all... The services that they're going to need to or do, or they don't necessarily all, want to, spend, or they don't want to the right. resources on that. Right. Area. I mean, they have priorities as well, and you can't be all things to all people all the time, right? You can you can do some things really really well, and then other things, um, you know, you leave to your uh, to your partners. And I think we're doing a good job. I think we're uh, setting the pace in the market for uh, managed services. We're we're leading the pack. We believe. Um, and, and we're going to continue to double down on that and, and push the accelerator even faster in terms of building out a full suite of this uh, really integrated uh, multi-cloud managed services for, the, for, the, uh, for all the cloud platforms, not just public cloud. And, and I, I want to make sure people understand that multi-cloud means public and private. It means OpenStack, VMware, Microsoft, and then all of the leading public clouds as well. We, we see, as, as we've already discussed, that this is a multi-year kind of messy uh, thing that where companies are going through a lot of transition and there's going to be workloads spread all over the place in, in the in the meantime if 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 it ever gets to a, a you know a perfect state it, it I, I doubt that'll ever happen but the perfect ideal yeah, the perfect ideal state will, will never happen everywhere but but it will it will all be um, something that rackspace continues to uh, you know to really embrace that complexity on behalf of our customers John thank you so much for sure. your time yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me and uh, appreciate the time. This episode of the Data Center Podcast is brought to you by Data Center World, the global conference for data center facilities and IT professionals. Join industry colleagues in San Antonio from March 12th to March 15th, 2018 to discover solutions to real-world data center problems. Learn more at datacenterworld.com. Again, that's datacenterworld.com.